0: Exciting beginnings. The day before leaving Oslo, we went to a hospital to greet a newborn, Uncle Tankum and Nata's daughter, Liv, our first Norwegian-born relative, my dear cousin. The next day, we went to the airport to fly to Africa. It was for all three of us our first flight. It was a four-engine propeller aircraft, a Douglas DC-4 Skymaster. We took off with snow falling on the ground in Oslo, and we landed many hours later in the warmth of Tunis, Africa. The smell of oranges and lemons filled the air. It was amazing. We took off again and flew overnight, landing in the rain in Kano, Nigeria, at breakfast time. We were fascinated as we watched the raindrops evaporating as they hit the ground. We sat at long tables, and behind us stood black waiters. We had never seen black people before. Our next stop was Elizabethville, Belgian Congo, now called Lubumbashi, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where my mother's relative Teddy Cotton met us. My mother had last seen him as a child in Kovno, when she took him to the train station to begin his journey to America to join his older siblings. He had been orphaned, and no one from his family was left in Lithuania. he was an officer in the US Army and was stationed in Elizabethville, and he was very touched to see my mother again. Teddy took us for dinner at the Elizabethville Zoo. It was dark as we sat next to a metal fence, but when my eyes adjusted, I saw a huge crocodile not more than 10 feet away from me. I had never seen one before. The experiences, each the first of its kind in my life, were piling up. We stayed overnight in a hotel, and in the morning, we took off for South Africa. Our plane landed at Palmitfontein Airport outside Johannesburg. We were greeted very warmly by my father's uncle Isaac, as well as by a large group of extended family that we had never met before. On the way from the airport into the city, one of our newfound relatives, Herzem Lavin, who was driving, lost his way and needed to ask for directions. He leaned out of the window and called out to someone, "'Hey, John, which way to Joburg?' I was surprised and asked how he knew this man. "'I don't know him. All blacks are John,' he replied." <laughs> This was the first of many cultural surprises I encountered in South Africa and Rhodesia. We were driven to an elegant home where the table was set with tasty food and drinks. There was a lot of laughter and chatting. Fortunately, we had a common language and could communicate in Yiddish. Many of the Jews in South Africa had emigrated from Europe both before and after World War I up until the 1930s. Thousands had come from Lithuania and had successfully integrated into the local community. We expected to be asked about our experiences during the war years. My father started to explain what had happened in the ghetto. However, it soon became clear that this was not a topic that people wanted to discuss. My father was told, Julius, Don't talk about it. You'll only upset yourself. We realized that their concern was not to save my father from pain, but to save themselves. We had a lot to tell, and we were willing to talk, but they were not willing to listen. When I realized how unwelcome our tales of suffering were, I decided to never talk about our experience again, and I didn't for about 25 years. We got the message that day, and later we realized their reaction was not unique. The subject of the concentration camps and the killings was not generally acceptable talk. My father would still try to recount what we had been through, but I remained silent. As we had been refused residence by the anti-Semitic government in South Africa, the National Party, We had to leave Johannesburg and continue our journey to Bulawayo in southern Rhodesia. We were anxious to settle in our new country, but when we discovered that Bulawayo was about 850 kilometers from Johannesburg, we realized that we would have to travel by train a full two days. Our previous experiences of traveling by train had been fraught with danger and dread. Yet this strange journey filled me with amazement. for hours on end, we traveled through semi-desert. All I saw was brown grass and scattered trees. In Europe, every few miles was a new town or a village. Here, there were no towns or villages we could see. But whenever the train stopped, within a couple of minutes, dozens of half-naked or poorly-dressed black children would gather around the train, begging, where they come from? Everything was so unfamiliar to me. It was daunting and exciting at the same time. Somewhere between Johannesburg and bulawayo in the open countryside, the train broke down and we were stopped for about an hour. I jumped off the train and was amazed to see that the railway tracks stretched all the way to the horizon in both directions. This gave me an indication of the size of the country we had come to and the huge distances. At the station in Bulawayo, my father and his brother had a very emotional greeting. The last time I had seen my uncle Samuel was in 1936, when I was eight years old. Uncle Samuel had worked hard for two years to persuade the Rhodesian government to grant us permission to settle in Rhodesia. Uncle Samuel and Aunt Anne had a small house with one extra bedroom for my parents and a couch in the living room for me. It was not an ideal arrangement, but it gave us an opportunity to acclimatize to this new way of life. With the help of the local Jewish community, we were soon able to move to more comfortable accommodations. Once again, language was a huge barrier. English was a difficult language for me to master. I was puzzled by the rules of spelling, grammar, pronunciation. Immediately, I found a teacher from the local school to give me English lessons. To be accepted into university, I needed to pass the high school matriculation exam, which meant that I had to attend school for nine months to accumulate the credits required. The school year started in January, so I had about a month to prepare myself to start classes. It was decided that I would do best in a technical high school, and that is where I enrolled, in grade 12. The headmaster of the high school was reluctant to take me in. I was a year or two older than the other boys, and I was an odd bird in this very conservative country. It was an all-boys school, and all the students were white. The relationship between whites and blacks was of great interest to me. Every white household had at least one black servant who lived in the backyard, in a small single room. Apart from the servants who lived in the white suburbs, the blacks lived in their own defined segregated areas called locations. Later, the whole political situation changed dramatically, but in 1947, that was an accepted way of life for white people. I acquired a bicycle to get to school and rode down the huge streets wide enough for a wagon with oxen to do a 180-degree turn. At lunchtime, I escaped from the noisy schoolyard and cycled to the beautiful local park to eat my lunch. The park was luscious richness of palm trees, shading bundles of every kind of African flower. Sterlitzia flowers tilted their inquiring heads in the hundreds. I wish I knew the names of the countless other beauties there. The grass was constantly being sprayed with water to keep the green carpet lush in the burning heat of the day. Palm trees were always my special love from afar in Lithuania. As a kid, I loved the pictures of palm trees on stamps, and I used to dream one day sitting under one. I found one little palm tree in the botanical garden in Kovno and a banana plant nearby, and I used to return there to admire them often. Now, in the Bulawaya Park, I was in palm heaven. I didn't know that leaving the school grounds was against the rules, so I was surprised when the headmaster called me to his office and asked me why I was leaving the school without permission. I told him, I love to sit under a palm tree and I look all the beautiful flowers. He looked at me strangely and he said, all right, but be discreet. (laughs) The boys had some fun with me, too. Once we had to study a Shakespeare sonnet, and there was nothing the boys hated more than poetry. When they read those beautiful words, it sounded to me like they were chopping wood. I said it aloud, so the boys shouted, "Okay, gods, so you read it. So, with my broken English and terrible accent, but with all my heart, I read all 14 lines of Shakespeare's famous sonnet, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? The boys were literally rolling on the floor with laughter. Even the polite teacher cracked a smile. I had no trouble getting a passing mark in maths, physics, drafting, and German. I read an English newspaper every day with a dictionary at my side. And wanting to be sure to pass the English exam, I went for private lessons and wrote two compositions a week. My teacher would mark the errors with a red pencil, and I would go home and rewrite them. I worked very hard. I chose to write about current events, philosophy, book reviews, astronomy, relationships, and even about my neighbor's dog. At the bottom of one essay, the teacher wrote, I admire and I despair. But I learned to write a simple English sentence whose structure was clear to me. I passed the final English exam with an A and I passed German with distinction. I also learned to drive, although we did not own a car for a good while. At the school, we had a cadets group, and everyone had to belong. Since Rhodesia was a British colony, everything was run by the rules of a British army. Officers came and lined us up, and we marched through the streets to the shooting range. We were instructed to march with our arms swinging. I felt embarrassed, swinging my arms like a wild man. I glanced around, concerned about what my friends were thinking, and an officer reprimanded me. When we got to the rifle range, I discovered that all my classmates knew how to use a rifle. Most of them had one of their own. I had to tell an officer that I had never fired a rifle and asked if he would kindly show me how to use it. He lay down on the ground next to me, explained everything very patiently, and then I fired the rifle several times with reasonable accuracy. I was very excited about this new skill. Later, when we had discussions with the officer about strategy on the battlefield, how to get out from the trenches and take an enemy position, I participated with interest. I began exploring the countryside. The large hills of bare rock were sometimes a challenge to climb. Cecil Rhodes, the British empire builder who led the occupation of Rhodesia for the British, is buried at Matobo, one such bare hill near Bulawayo. I came to love the many landscapes of Rhodesia. Depending on the season, They changed from lush to totally dry and yellow. In Bulawayo, the Jewish community was small, but there was an active cultural life in this far corner of Africa. I joined a Zionist youth organization and made friends. My Uncle Samuel was a chairman of several Jewish organizations and arranged lectures. Lecturers came from South Africa and Israel, and the reception was always warm and well-attended. At a Jewish club, I learned to play snooker. I was accepted into the circle of a Jewish family that had escaped from Hitler's Germany, and one of their daughters became a close friend of mine. This family was voraciously passionate about classical music. In addition to attending every possible local classical concert and criticizing it viciously after, the local standard of music was considered very low. They attended only for lack of better options. They held musical evenings at their home with great decorum. They had a vast collection of vinyl records and the best equipment on which to play them. A group of regulars, All refugees from Germany attended the concerts, and I was invited too. Everyone came dressed almost formally and sat absolutely still during the performance. Cuffs were frowned upon, sneeze twice, and you must banish yourself to another room. A program listing each musical number to be played The conductors and main performers were distributed. After the concert, coffee was served in elegant, beautiful porcelain with some delicious cake baked by the hostess. During intermissions, there was polite, learned discussion about the music that had just been heard, even criticism by the more knowledgeable members of the circle. A critic was never criticized in turn, but an even finer point might be brought up by another. In that company, I learned a good deal about classical music and later in life attended concerts with pleasure. There was no university in Rhodesia, so I enrolled in the electrical engineering department at the University of the Witwatersrand, Witz, in Johannesburg. I departed from Bulawayo on the two day train journey full of anticipation and excitement on my way to achieving my main goal in life. My father's uncle Isaac was true to his word and paid for my tuition and board. I moved into a rooming house that operated on absolute minimum standards, but it was located across the road from the university and I could roll out of bed and be in class within 10 minutes. This was a big plus for me, as I am not a morning person. Every day, I thought about how lucky I was to have achieved my place, where I was a diligent student. I noticed that there was a group of five students who all sat at the front of the class and were serious about learning. So I attached myself to that group. We were always together. Discussing the material, helping each other, going for lunch, talking politics. I made lifelong friends with two of them, Norman and John. Norman Morrison, a Jewish boy who was brilliant when it came to mathematics, later moved to the United States, obtained a doctorate, and made significant contributions to engineering science. I treasure all the books he has written. We see each other when he visits Toronto, where his daughter Lisa and our family reside. And we always delight in each other's company. I also became close with John Blank. His parents, German Jews, escaped Germany during Hitler's rule, just in time. John also moved to the United States, and he worked as an engineer for General Electric. We always kept in touch. In 2017, when I heard the sad news that he was very ill, I flew to see him and his two wonderful sons, Stephen and Dan. He passed away shortly after my visit. Another member of our group became well known in the United States, Dr. Tingy Lee, who worked for Bell Labs and developed the glass fiber optics communication technology. He was a son of the Imperial China Ambassador in South Africa. It was a good group to be part of, and it helped me to learn successfully. I also fondly remember Professor Bozoli, a wonderful teacher. One day he took me aside and asked me about my past. When I told him my story, he was very moved, and he was always kind to me. Each summer, I returned by train to Bulawayo to be with my parents, and I worked in a radio workshop to earn money for my education. Uncle Isaac died after my second year at university, but by then I was earning enough from my summer job to complete the last two years of study. After four years, in 1952, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Engineering specializing in electronics. My parents were present at my graduation and shared my happiness. I won a scholarship to study at a prestigious company in England, but when the authorities discovered I was not a British citizen and that I was a stateless person, I was not eligible to accept the scholarship. Professor Bozzoli, brought me the news with great regret. I returned to bulawayo I had plans to hitchhike through Africa to Europe, but I saw that my parents were having a tough time financially. I then tried to find a job as an engineer, but Rhodesia had little industry and there were no jobs for me. I helped my parents open a bicycle store and then I established a radio repair shop inside the store, which soon became successful. I began selling radios to the black population and then expanded the radio repair business by having two messengers on bicycles, two or many stores in town, to pick up radios for repair, returning them the following morning. I would do all the repairs at night, and became very adept doing them quickly. One day I had an idea. The black population was a majority in town, and they lived in the poor part of town, which had no entertainment at all. I applied to the municipality for permission to establish an open-air projection screen in one such location to show free entertainment. Once I received permission, I began to plan to display advertising slides at night. That required that I go out to find advertisers from the local stores that were catering to this population. I had no money at all, so I insisted that the advertisers pay in advance for three months. My father had no business experience in his life and he now became concerned with my business activities, that I was selling advertising without having any business yet. He warned me, you are taking people's money without any business in sight. You will end up in jail and disgrace us all. I didn't listen. I was driven to achieve success, to build a successful business. The advance payments that I collected from advertisers put some money in my bank account. So I purchased a used van and installed inside a large slide projector and a full record playing setup with amplifiers, a microphone, and a loudspeaker on the roof. I did all my own installations since I had the skills. Soon I was at the site of the screen every night showing advertising slides. I hired a confident African man at the microphone who would speak about the advertising slide, as many locals could not read and tell jokes to the merriment of the audience who were standing around in the street. He spoke several local languages so everyone in the crowd could understand him. I remember one joke. Hey, I was walking at night here, And a man comes over to me and asks for the time. So I look at my watch and I tell him it's 10 o'clock. Then he says, have you seen a policeman around here? I say, no, I have not. So he pulls out a knife and demands I give him my watch. The audience was rolling with laughter. After a while, I expanded my screens to five separate locations in town, visiting each one once a week. Sometimes I had huge audiences, 3,000 people sitting on a sloping hill with a screen below in the valley, and a projector van parked at the top of the hill. I persuaded an ad advertising agency in Johannesburg to come and see my business. Two executives arrived in Bulawayo, and one night I took them to see my show. We were driving through unlit, bumpy streets in the poor part of town, and my guests became very worried. They locked the car doors and asked if it was safe to be there. I reassured them. Then we arrived at the top of the hill, and I invited them to come out and see the audience below. They could barely believe what they were seeing. Several thousand people sitting on the ground and watching the presentations. After that, I persuaded them to give me animated films with an ad at the end for Coca-Cola. And that became such a success that I started making films myself. I obtained a 16mm payload bollocks Bolex camera, read up on techniques, and filmed local sports events. These became extremely popular, and people were asking for more of the same, which increased the value of my advertising sales. I also began to make primitive advertising films, including stop-motion films, where inanimate objects move, such as a spoon spreading out tea leaves on a table with a brand of the tea etched on the white cloth. My audience marveled aloud at these films, I also approached the record companies and proved to them that by playing new records by local artists, I could really promote sales of these records. I partnered with people who run a newspaper that served the black population. And we outfitted two new vans, attached electric generators, and sent them out with our advertising and entertainment programs to the outlying villages. Then I had another plan for a business, sound recording. I opened a recording studio together with a Scottish engineer. We developed two kinds of activities, supplying amplifiers and loudspeakers for public events and recording music and speeches on vinyl records. My partner, Alastair was an experienced recording engineer and had worked for the BBC in England. He was working for a local radio company, so it was a part-time business for both of us. I was in charge of finding business, and then we both worked on fiddling the orders. I was very good at fixing sound issues at public events by installing networks of small loudspeakers across a room so that everyone could hear. Our business became very successful. I was busy day and night running several companies at the same time, and I discovered that I loved it. I became convinced that I could start any company I wanted if I had an original concept and an idea of how it might succeed. Since my parents had never been in business, I never received any useful background knowledge. Business was all new to me, and I learned as I went along. It was not all work and no play for me, though. I wanted to explore the country, its vast empty spaces, the mountains, the bush. I came to love the land and its people. I felt keenly the injustices done to black people, and I was embarrassed. be a white man and to be part of such an oppressive system, but I had to be careful about expressing my thoughts on these matters to local white people. I joined a riding club and learned to ride horses, later leading groups of new riders through the bush. It is a wonderful feeling to go out riding through the countryside in the late afternoon, smell the smoke from village fires wafting through the air, and see the sun setting slowly. These were magical moments that I remember fondly. I also tried jumping on horseback. It is a special feeling when the horse bends its hind legs and takes a mighty jump upwards. I learned to stand up in the stirrups to at that moment, as otherwise the mighty push from behind could send me flying forward over the horse's head. I wanted to own a rifle. All my teenage years I had guns pointing at me. Now I wanted to have one myself. There was very little paperwork involved for white people to obtain guns. I acquired a hunting rifle and a heavy revolver, and I learned to use them safely. I was thinking of learning to hunt having read many books on famous African hunters. In Bulawayo, I met a man who told me that he and his friend were planning to go on a crocodile hunt. I met his friend, Cecil, the leader, who was an experienced hunter, and he agreed to let me join. I helped them weld a boat from sheet iron. Including me, there were six men in the boat, The man who introduced me, Cecil the leader, an older man who had excellent eyesight and was known as a good spotter, and two other black African men who worked for Cecil. Cecil was planning to become a professional crocodile hunter, and this was his first attempt to see if he could make it pay. Crocodile skin is considered one of the finest and best, being soft and durable. But only the skin on the belly has these qualities. The top skin is covered in bones that can deflect arrows and spears. Only the belly on the crocodile can be sold. And the value is assessed per inch of the width of the skin. The skins needed to be rubbed with salt for preservation. So we brought bags of salt with us. We drove in Cecil's truck from Bulawayo to Victoria Falls, where we lowered our boat into the Zambezi River. 50 kilometers upriver from the falls, the Zambezi is over a mile wide, with islands in some places. Many crocodiles were sunning themselves on the islands, but they disappeared as soon as we got close. In Africa, the crocodile, has the reputation of being the meanest and the most ferocious of animals. It has earned the reputation as a people-eater, and in its presence caution and respect are always advised. The only way to hunt crocodiles is at night, when they float in the river hunting for fish. Cecil wore a miner's powerful light on his head to scan the river. Crocodile eyes shine red when caught in their headlights. I was told that they have crystals behind their retina that reflects light and makes their night vision possible. Voices can scare away the crocs, but the engine noise did not bother them. Cecil sat in front and waved his arms to indicate which way to direct the boat. I steered the motor following his instructions. When he located a crocodile, he waved his hands up and down, which meant slow down. He lifted his double-barreled .458 elephant gun, aimed one inch above the line of the eyes of the crocodile, and fired at close range. Crocodiles have a valve in their throat that is closed when they are in the water. When shot, the valve opens involuntarily and the crocodile begins to sink by taking in water. So we had to grab the croc as soon as a boat was on top of it. The bone in a crocodile's head is about three inches thick at the front. So even an elephant bullet at close range does not always kill it, but just stuns it. We shot three crocodiles at night and brought them back to our camping spot on the shore. Cecil's crew then skinned them and threw the remainder of the carcasses into the bush, away from the tents. In the morning, there was a huge cry coming from where we had left the carcasses. A flock of vultures had descended to clean up. They were putting their heads inside the carcasses and coming up red with blood, and they were fighting with each other. Nature has its own laws. What a sight. We also had the doubtful pleasure of meeting a female hippopotamus head-on, though it was her other end that was actually crushed into. She was sleeping while standing in the high reeds close to shore, and we didn't see her as we were steering the boat through the reeds. There are no brakes on the boat, and the prowl hit her from behind in a very sensitive spot. With a mighty grunt, she threw herself sideways into the water, and the huge wave nearly tipped us over. We expected an attack, but none came. On another occasion, a male hippo took exception to our presence in his waters and swung his head against our boat. With his front tooth, He made a one-inch hole in our steel boat, just below the waterline. Luckily, we were very close to shore. One night, as I was guiding the boat and contemplating the half-moon shining on the dark water, a shot rang out, and Cecil shouted, Grab him before he sinks! I stuck my hand in the water and grabbed the leg of a crocodile, holding on as best I could. Two of my mates grabbed the other leg and its tail. The others leaned toward the other side of the boat to prevent it from tipping over. We dragged the 10-foot crocodile into the boat. I was at the engine, and the crocodile's head was beside my leg. I revved up the motor, and we moved again. Then I felt something moving near my leg, so I picked up the flashlight and looked down. The crocodile's jaw was opening and closing right next to my leg. I shouted, Cecil, he's moving. Cecil told me to shoot the croc in the ear with my revolver. I carried a .45 on my waist, but I was afraid to shoot into the crocodile's ear in case the bullet went through his head and the boat as well. Cecil grabbed the gun from my reluctant hand and fired into the crocodile's ear. He said, nothing ever comes out of a crocodile's head on the other side. (laughs) The croc closed its jaw and lay still. I asked myself, Eligot, what are you doing here? It was an exciting week for me. We shot about 14 crocodiles, some of them 15 feet long. We hunted wild ducks and ate them for dinner while the mosquitoes ate us. In daytime, we relaxed and fished. I mounted a half pound of crocodile meat on a huge fish hook and flung it far out into the river. And a moment later, I had a large tiger fish at the end of my line. It fought me for a long time before I pulled it in. I still have the photograph of myself in a bush hat, unshaven and grinning with a large fish hanging by my side, that photo captures a very happy moment for me.